Welcome back to Psychic Crime, and I'm your host, Nicole Mann. Like always, I want to thank you for listening, especially for our fans outside the U.S., with Portugal, India, Norway, and New Zealand coming out of nowhere with all these listens in the past couple of weeks. Thank you guys so much. I especially love that we have people listening in Portugal. I live in an area of Massachusetts that has a lot of Portuguese immigrants, so I especially love that. Um, I love to hear from you guys. Those of you reaching out to me on uh, Twitter and Instagram, thank you for the support and your input. Um, if you do want to reach out, it's Geek Flossy on Twitter and Instagram. Um, I always want to hear from those of you outside the U.S. who uh, may have some crimes that happened in your home country that may not have made it all the way out here to the United States. Uh, I'm always looking for uh, things overseas. Um, always want to give back to our listeners and do crimes from their home countries. Now, if you want to show your love, please give us five stars on whatever platform you listen to us on. Or you can throw us some uh, change by dropping by our Patreon page, which is patreon.podbean.com forward slash psychercrime. Or if you want to send us a one-time donation, you can hit us at Venmo, which is at psych-your-crime. Either way, we're just happy to have you listening. Now, this week, uh, we're going to take a look at the case of Mark Hoffman, a Mormon document forger who decided to cover his crimes by setting off bombs. Art and Antiquities Forgery is the creating and selling of works of art, antiquities, and documents which are falsely credited to other, more famous individuals. Art forgery can be extremely lucrative, but modern dating and analysis techniques have made the identification of forged art antiquities and documents much simpler. Art forgery dates back more than 2,000 years. Roman sculptors produced copies of Greek sculptures. Presumably, the contemporary buyers knew that they were not genuine. During the classical period, art was generally created for historical reference, religious inspiration, or simply aesthetic enjoyment. The identity of the artist was often of little importance to the buyer. Following the Renaissance, the increasing prosperity of the middle class created a fierce demand for art. Near the end of the 14th century, Roman statues were unearthed in Italy, intensifying the populace's interest in antiquities and leading to a sharp increase in the value of these objects. This upsurge soon extended to the contemporary and recently deceased artists. Art had become a commercial commodity, and the monetary value of artwork came to depend on the identity of the artist. To identify the work, painters began to mark them, or sign them. As demand for certain artwork began to exceed the supply, fraudulent signatures began to appear on the open market. In the 20th century, the art market has favored artists such as Salvador Dali, Pablo Picasso, Klee, and Matisse. Works by these artists have commonly been targets of forgery. These forgeries are typically sold to art galleries and auction houses who cater to the taste of arts and antiquities collectors. At the time of the occupation of France by German forces during World War II, paintings which fetched the highest price at the main French auction house, Dural, was a fake Cezanne. 
In the 11th century, they saw a sharp incline in forgeries of religious relics and documents, with multiple forgeries of the true cross, or the cross that Jesus was rumored to have been crucified on, popping up, as well as the first sightings of what would become known as the Shroud of Turin, a linen cloth bearing the imprint of a man's face, many believing this to have been the Christ's burial shroud. There are essentially three varieties of forgeries. The person who actually creates the fraudulent piece. The person who discovers a piece and attempts to pass it off as something it's not in order to increase the piece's value. And thirdly, those who discover that a work is fake but sell it as an original anyway. Copies, replicas, reproductions, and pastiches are often legitimate works and the distinction between a legitimate reproduction and deliberate forgery is blurred. For example, Guy Hahn used original molds to reproduce several of Rodin's sculptures. However, when Hahn then signed the reproductions with the name of Rodin's original foundry, the works became deliberate forgeries. An art forger must at least somewhat be proficient in the type of art he is trying to imitate. Many forgers were once fledgling artists who tried unsuccessfully to break into the market, eventually resorting to forgery. Sometimes an original item is borrowed or stolen from the owner in order to create a copy. Forgers will then return the copy to the owner, keeping the original for themselves. In 1799, a self-portrait by Albrecht Dürer, which had hung in the Nuremberg Town Hall since the 16th century, was loaned to Abraham excuse me, Wolfgang Kochner the painter made a copy of the original and returned the copy in place of the original. The forgery was discovered in 1805 when the original came up for auction and was purchased for the royal collection. Although many art forgers reproduce work solely for money, some have claimed that they have created forgeries to expose the, the credulity and snobbishness of the art world. Essentially, the artists claim usually after they've been caught, that they have performed only hoaxes of exposure. Some exposed forgers have later sold their reproductions honestly by attributing them as copies, and some have actually gained enough notoriety to become famous. Forgeries painted by the late Elmore de Corre, featured in the film F for Fake, directed by Orson Welles, have become so valuable that forged de Jores have appeared on the market. The most obvious forgeries are revealed as clumsy pieces, copies of previous art. A forger may try to create a new work by combining the elements of more than one work. The forger may omit details typical to the artist they are trying to imitate, or may add acronyms, acronyms excuse me, in an attempt to claim that the forged work is slightly different or than a previous uh, version of a more famous work. To detect the work of a skilled forger, investigators must rely on other methods. Often, a thorough examination, sometimes referred to as a Morellian analysis of the piece, is enough to determine authenticity. For example, a sculpture may have been created obviously within modern method, with modern methods and tools, some forgers have used artistic methods inconsistent with those of original artists, such as incorrect brushwork, 
perspective, preferred themes, or techniques, or have used colors that were not available during the artist's lifetime to create the painting. Some forgers have dipped pieces in chemicals in order to age them. Some have even tried to imitate worn marks by drilling holes into the object. Uh, you may see a lot on TV shows where people try and age paper. Forgers will uh, get paper for documents out of old books. A lot of old books had a blank page in the front of the book where nothing was typed or printed on it. And forgers will go to rare book collections and rare book sales and try and purchase the books just so they can get that blank page of paper for documents. And you'll see a lot in TV shows where people will try and age paper by dipping it in tea to give it that brownish color and make it look older. While attempting to authenticate artwork, experts will also determine the piece's provenance. If the item has no paper trail, it is more likely to be a forgery. Other techniques forgers use, which might indicate a painting is not authentic, include frames, either new or old, that have been altered in order to make a forged painting look more genuine. To hide inconsistencies or manipulations, forgers will sometimes glue paper, new or old, to a painting's back or cut or forge paintings from its original size. Recently added labels or artist listings um, onto unsigned work of art. Uh, art restores legitimately use new stretcher bar bars when old bars are worn. New stretcher bars on old canvases might be an indication that a forger is attempting to alter the painting. Old nail holes or mounting marks on the back of the piece might indicate that a painting has been removed from the frame, doctored, and then replaced either to the original frame or a different frame. Signatures on paintings or graphics that look inconsistent with the art, unsigned work that the dealer has heard is by a specific artist. Uh, more recently, magnetic signatures used in the ink of banknotes are becoming popular for the authentication of work. Now, if a, a simple examination of a piece fails to reveal whether it's authentic or forged, investigators may attempt to authenticate it using forensic methods such as carbon dating, which is used to measure the age of an object up to 10,000 years old. White lead dating is used to pinpoint the age of an object up to 1,600 years old. Conventional x-rays can be used to detect earlier work present under the surface of a painting because sometimes um, artists used to paint over old paintings or sometimes in order to get the right canvas, a forger may use a painting by a lesser known artist from the same time period and paint over that. Um, X-ray diffraction. Um, if the object bends X-rays, it'll be used to analyze the components that make up the paint that an artist used. Uh, X-ray fluorescence uh, can reveal if the, if the metals in a metal sculpture or the composition of the pigments is too pure or newer than their supposed age. And it can even reveal the artist or the forger's fingerprints. Ultraviolet, uh, both fluorescence and infrared analysis are used to detect repairs or earlier paintings. Atomic absorption, uh, spectrometry, and inductively coupled plasma mass, mass spectrometry are used to detect anomalies in painting and materials. If an element is present in the invest 
that the investigators know were not used historically in objects of this type, then the object is not authentic. When you watch shows about forgery, the oftentimes this type of analysis is used to detect paintings in the 20th century painted before the 40s because there will be levels of radiation in the paint painted after the 40s because they'll have been testing atomic bombs whereas before the 40s there will not be any levels of radiation in the paint chips so that's how they can prove that forgery within the time frame so they may have the correct kind of paint but they can date the paint um, by um, how much radiation if any is in the paint um, gas chromatography can be used to analyze the paint binding medium uh, if there are elements detected that were not used during that period or that are not used in the region where the art is from stable isotope analysis can be used to determine where marble um, in a sculpture was quarried thermalescence is used to date pottery um, the light produced by heat older than pottery produces more when heated in a newer piece so they use it to kind of determine uh, the age of pottery um, and a feature of genuine paintings is sometimes used to detect as craculature and craculature is when uh, is pretty much exactly what it sounds like the way that the paint settles and kind of gets a crackle to it um, certain paints don't have that kind of, of crack to it when they dry and especially over time. Now there's also digital authentication. Statistical analysis of digital images of paintings is a new method that has recently been used to detect forgeries. Using a technique called wavelet decomposition, a picture is broken down into a collection of more basic images called subbands. The subbands are analyzed to determine textures assigning a frequency to each subband. The broad strokes of a surface, such as a blue sky, would show up as mostly low-frequency subbands, whereas fine strokes in blades of grass would produce high-frequency subbands. Peter Bruegel, the elder, was tested using the wavelet decomposition method. Five of the drawings were known to be imitations. The analysis was able to correctly identify the five forged paintings. The method was also used on the painting Virgin with Child with Saints created in the studio of Pietro Perugino. Historians have long suspected that Perugino painted only one portion of the work. The wavelet decomposition method indicated that at least four different artists worked on the painting. Mark Hoffman was born in Salt Lake City, Utah. He was raised in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints by two devoutly religious parents. Hoffman was a below average high school student, but he had many hobbies, including magic, electronics, chemistry, and stamp and coin collecting. He and his friends were said to have made bombs for fun on the outskirts of Murray, Utah. According to Hoffman, while still a teenage coin collector, he forged a rare mint mark on a dime and was told by an organization of coin collectors that it was genuine. Like many young men in the LDS church, Hoffman volunteered to spend two years as an 
LDS missionary. And in 1973, the church sent him to the England Southwest Mission, where he was based in Bristol. Hoffman told his parents that he had baptized several converts. He did not tell them that he had also pursued Fawn M. Brody's biography of Joseph Smith, No Man Knows My History, while in England. Hoffman also enjoyed investigating bookshops and buying early Mormon materials, as well as books critiquing Mormonism. Hoffman later told prosecutors he had lost his faith in the LDS church when he was about 14. He learned that his maternal grandparents had continued to secretly practice polygamy for more than a decade after the church publicly ended the practice. It was not fully renounced until 1904. A former girlfriend believed he performed his mission only because of social pressure and the desire not to disappoint his parents. After Hoffman returned from his mission, he enrolled as a pre-med major at Utah State University. In 1979, he married Dora Lee Old. The couple eventually had four children. Dory filed for divorce in 1987 two years after his crimes came to light and became co-founder of a holistic healing company. In 1980, Hoffman claimed he had found a 17th century King James Bible with a folded paper gummed inside. The document seemed to be the transcript that Joseph Smith's scribe, Martin Harris, had presented to Charles Anthon, a Columbia Classics professor, in 1828. According to the Mormon scripture, Joseph Smith, the, the, his, the transcript and its unusual reformed Egyptian characters were copied by Smith from the golden plates from which he translated the Book of Mormon. Hoffman constructed his version to fit Anthon's description of the document, and its discovery made Hoffman's reputation. Dean Jesse an editor of Joseph Smith's papers and best-known expert on handwriting and old documents in the historical department of the LDS Church, concluded that the document was a Smith holograph. The LDS Church announced the discovery of the Anthon transcript in April and purchased it from Hoffman for more than $20,000. Appraised by the LDS Church for $25,000, it was purchased on October 13th in exchange for several artifacts the church owned in duplicate, including a $5 gold Mormon coin, desert banknotes, and a first edition of the Book of Mormon. Assuming the document to be genuine, the prominent Mormon academic Hugh Nibley predicted that the discovery promised as good a test as we'll ever get of the authenticity of the Book of Mormon, because he thought the paper might be translated. Zoology professor Barry Fell soon after claimed to have decoded the text. Hoffman promptly dropped out of school and went into business as a dealer in rare books. He soon fabricated other historically significant documents and became noted among the LDS church history buffs for his discovery of previously unknown materials pertaining to the Latter-day Saint movement. These deceived not only members of the First Presidency, notably Gordon B. Hinckley, then the de facto president of the church due to the poor health of more senior leaders, but also document experts 
and distinguished historians. According to Richard and Joan Osterling, Hoffman was by this time a closet apostate, mentioned not only by greed, but also by the desire to embarrass the church by undermining church history. During the early 1980s, a significant number of new Mormon documents came into the marketplace. Sometimes the church received these as donations, and others it purchased. According to the Ostlings, the church publicized some of the acquisitions. It orchestrated public relations for some that were known to be sensitive. Others it acquired secretly and suppressed. In 1981, Hoffman arrived at the headquarters of the LDS Church with a document which supposedly proved evidence that Smith had designated his son Joseph Smith III rather than Brigham Young as his successor. In a forged cover letter purportedly written by Thomas Bullock and dated January 27, 1865, Bullock chastises Young for having all copies of the blessings destroyed. Bullock writes that although he believed Young to be a legitimate leader of the LDS Church, he would keep his copy of the blessing. Such a letter, if true, would portray Young and by extension the LDS Church in an unfavorable light. In February 1981, Hoffman tried to sell the letter to the chief archivist of the LDS Church. Hoffman expected the church to buy the blessing on the spot and bury it. When the archivist balked at the peace, Hoffman offered it to the reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, now known as the Community of Christ, which had always claimed that the line of succession had been bestowed on Smith descendants, but never had written proof. A scramble to acquire the document occurred, and Hoffman, posing as a faithful Mormon, presented it to his church in exchange for items worth more than $20,000. Nevertheless, Hoffman also ensured that the document would be made public. The next day, a New York Times headline read, Mormon document raises doubts on succession of church leaders, and the LDS Church was forced to, to confirm the discovery and publicly present the document to the RLDS Church. During the race by the Utah and Missouri churches, to acquire the blessing document, Hoffman discovered a lever to exercise enormous power over his church, a power to menace and manipulate its leaders with nothing more sinister than a sheet of paper. Salt Lake County District Attorney's investigator Michael George believed that after Hoffman had successfully forged the blessing, his ultimate goal was to create the lost 116 pages of the Book of Mormon which he could have filled with inconsistencies and errors, sell them to the church to be hidden away, and then, as he had done often with embarrassing documents, make sure its contents were made public. Perhaps the most notorious of Hoffman's Mormon forgeries, the Salamander Letter, appeared in 1984. Supposedly written by Harris W.W. W. Phelps, the letter presented a version of the recovery of the gold plates it contrasted markedly with the church-sanctioned version of events. Not only did the forgery intimate that Smith had been practicing money digging through magical practices, but it also replaced the angel that Smith had said appeared to him with a white salamander. 
After the letter had been purchased for the church and became public knowledge, the LDS church apostle, Dalen H. Oaks, asserted to Mormon educators that the word white salamander could be reconciled with Smith's angel Moroni because in the 1820s, the word salamander might also refer to a mythical being thought to be able to live in fire. And a being that is able to live in fire is a good approximation of the description that Joseph Smith gave of the angel Moroni. What? Wait. Um, yeah. So, I'm sorry. What, like, how do you get angel from white salamander? Like, no. Like, who are you that you are, like, so desperate that you're like, we can work with this. We, we can totally work with this. I'm positive we can convince people that just a little more than a hundred years ago, white salamander met angel. Like, for real. We'll just go with it. Like, who are you that that even crosses your mind? Like, no. No. In 1984, Gerald and Sandra Tanner, critics of the LDS church, became the first to declare the letter a forgery. Despite the fact that it, as well as others of Hoffman's discoveries, would have strengthened the Tanner's arguments against the veracity of official Mormon history. Document expert Kenneth W. Rendell later said that while there was an absence of any indication of forgery in the letter itself, there's also no evidence that it was genuine. No one is certain how many forged documents Hoffman created during the early 1980s. But they included a letter from Joseph Smith's mother, Lucy Mack Smith, describing the origin of the Book of Mormon. Letters from Martin Harris and David Whitmere, two of the three witnesses, each giving a personal account of their visions. A contract between Smith and Egbert Bratt Grandin for the printing of the first edition of the Book of Mormon, and two pages of the original Book of Mormon manuscript taken in dictation from Smith to Oliver Codrick. In 1983, Hoffman bypassed the LDS Church's historical department and sold to Gordon B. Hinckley, a member of the First Presidency of the Church. An 1825 Joseph Smith holograph purporting to confirm that Smith had been treasure hunting and practicing black magic five years before his first vision. Oh Lord, no, we can't have the Christian practicing magic. Sorry. Hoffman had the signature authenticated by Charles Hamilton and the contemporary Dean of American Autograph Dealers, sold the letter to the church for $15,000 and gave his word that no one else had a copy because his word means so much. I'm finding this difficult to stay serious because like nothing this man says is true or honest and I don't understand how no one has questioned him to this point. Then Hoffman leaked its existence to the press, because of course he did, after which the church was virtually forced to release the letter for scholars to study, despite previously denying that it had it in its possession. To make this sudden flood of important Mormon documents seem plausible, Hoffman explained that he relied on a network of tipsters and had methodically tracked down modern descendants of early Mormons and had mined collections of 19th century letters that had been saved by collectors for their postmarks rather than their contents. Yes, because there is 
a large group of people out there that are not collecting stamps, they're not collecting letters, they're just collecting postmarks. Because tons of those folks out there. In addition to documents from Mormon history, Hoffman also forged and sold signatures of many famous non-Mormons, including George Washington, John Adams, John Quincy Adams, Daniel Boone, John Brown, Andrew Jackson, Mark Twain, Nathan Hale, John Hancock, <laughs> ironic, Francis Scott Key, Abraham Lincoln, John Milton, Paul Revere, Miles Standish, and Button Gwinnett, whose signature was the rarest and therefore the most valuable of any signer of the Declaration of Independence. Hoffman also forged a previously unknown poem in the hand of Emily Dickinson, but Hoffman's grandest scheme was to forge what was perhaps the most famous missing document in American colonial history, the Oath of Freedom. The one-page oath had been printed in 1639, the first document to be printed in Britain's American colonies, but only about 50 copies had been made, and none of these were in existence. A genuine example was probably worth over a million dollars in 1985. And Hoffman's agents began negotiate a sale to the Library of Congress. Seriously? This dude was able to fool the Library of Congress? That's insane. That means he had fooled the Smithsonian too, because they authenticate most things for the Library of Congress. Despite the considerable amounts of money that Hoffman had made from document sales, he was deeply in debt, because of course he was, because, you know, all of this money is just not enough. In part because of his increasingly lavish lifestyle, and his purchase of genuine first edition books. Okay, well, I would be in debt over that too because I love books, especially like new books with like nice leather bindings. Yeah. In an effort to clear his debts, he attempted to broker a sale of the McClellan Collection, a supposedly extensive group of documents written by William E. McClellan, an early Mormon apostle who eventually broke with the LSD church. Hoffman hinted the McClellan Collection would provide revelations unfavorable to the LSD church. But Hoffman had no idea where the McClellan collection was, nor did he have time to forge a suitably large group of documents. Those whom Hoffman had promised documents or repayment of debts began to hound him. And the sale of the Oath of Freedom was delayed by questions about its authenticity. In an effort to buy more time, Hoffman began constructing bombs. On October 15, 1985, he first killed document collector Stephen Christensen, the son of a locally prominent clothier, Matt Christensen. Later the same day, a second bomb killed Kathy Sheets, the wife of Christensen's former employer. As Hoffman had intended, police initially suspected the bombings were related to the impending collapse of an investment business of which Sheets' husband, J. Gary Sheets was the principal and Christensen was his protege. The following day, Hoffman himself was severely injured when a bomb exploded in his car. Because, you know, always carry your bombs in your cars, kid. Although police quickly focused on Hoffman as a suspect in the bombings, some of Hoffman's business associates went into hiding, fearing they might also become victims. During the bombing investigation, police discovered evidence of forgeries in Hoffman's basement. They also found an engraving plant where he had forged the plate 
for the oath of a freeman. Hawthorne had made two significant errors in his oath, creating a version impossible to have been set in type. Document examiner George Throckmorton analyzed several Hoffman documents that had previously been deemed authentic and determined they were forgeries. Three letters purportedly written from an Illinois prison by Joseph Smith used different ink, paper, and writing instruments. Because the letters had been authenticated by different experts, the inconsistencies had escaped detection. Throckmorton also discovered that some documents supposedly written by different people had similar handwriting styles and had been written with homemade iron gall ink that looked cracked like alligator skin under a microscope, although authentic period ink did not. That's an example of crack lecture. Investigators also found that a poem used to authenticate the handwriting in the salamander letter had been forged by Hoffman and inserted into a book of common prayer once owned by Martin Harris. So basically, the handwriting exemplar that they use to authenticate the letter was forged by Hoffman. So he forged the handwriting exemplar and that's why that they deemed it authentic. Hoffman was arrested in 1986 and charged on four indictments totaling 27 counts, including first-degree murder, delivering a bomb, constructing or possessing a bomb, theft by deception, and communication fraud. A fifth, a fifth indictment containing an additional five counts, theft by deception, was added later in January. He initially maintained his innocence. However, at a preliminary hearing, prosecutors produced voluminous amounts of evidence of his forgery and debts as well as evidence leaking him to the bombs. Hoffman not only faced the prospect of the death penalty in Utah, but was indicted on federal charges of possession of an unregistered machine gun. Oh, cause you know, let's just make it worse. New York prosecutors also sought an indictment on the fraudulent sale of Oath of a Freeman because yeah, you tried to screw over the Library of Congress. In January 1987, Hoffman pleaded guilty to two counts of second-degree murder, one count of theft by deception for forging the Salamander letter, one count of fraud for the bogus sale of the McClellan collection. Hoffman agreed to confess his forgeries in open court, in return for which prosecutors in Utah and New York dropped the additional charges against him. He was sentenced five years to life, but the judge recommended that Hoffman never see the light of day again. In 1988, before the Utah Board of Pardons, Hoffman said that he thought planting the bomb that killed Kathy Sheets was almost a game. At the time I made the bomb, my thoughts were that it didn't matter if it was Mrs. Sheets, a child, a dog, whoever. Within an hour of the parole board, they were struck by Hoffman's callous disregard for human life and decided that he would indeed need to serve the entire term of his natural life in prison. After Hoffman was imprisoned, he was excommunicated by the LDS church and his wife filed for divorce. Hoffman attempted suicide in his cell by taking an overdose of antidepressants. He was revived, but not before spending 12 hours lying on his right arm, blocking his circulation and causing a muscle atrophy. His forging hand was thereby permanently disabled. Hoffman ended up in the Utah 
has Utah Department of Corrections offender number 41235. He was originally incarcerated at Utah State Prison in Draper. However, in 2016, he was transferred to Central Utah Correctional Facility in Gunnison. As a master forger, Hoffman deceived a number of renowned document experts during his short career. Some of his forgeries were accepted by scholars for years, and an unknown number of them are still in circulation. But it's Hoffman's forgeries of modern documents that have had the greatest historical significance. In August 1987, the sensational aspects of the Hoffman case led Apostle Dallin H. Oaks to believe the church members had witnessed some of the most intense LDS church bashing since the turn of the 20th century. A student of Mormonism, Jan Ships, agreed that press reports contained an astonishing amount of innuendo associating Hoffman's plagiarism with Mormon beginnings. Myriad reports alleged secrecy and cover-ups on the part of LDS general authorities, and not a few writers referred to the way in which the culture that rests on found scripture is particularly vulnerable to con artists. According to the Oslings, the Hoffman forgeries could only have been perpetuated in connection with a curious mixture of paranoia and obsessiveness with which Mormons approach church history. After Hoffman's exposure, the LDS church tried to correct the record, but public relations damage as well as the forgery losses meant the church was also a victim of Hoffman's. Robert Lindsay has also suggested that Hoffman stimulated a burst of historical inquiry regarding Joseph Smith's youthful enthusiasm for magic did not wither after his conviction. So in other words, people are convinced that Joseph Smith dabbled in the dark arts before he founded the Church of uh, Latter-day Saints, and that hasn't gone away um, as uh, Mark Hoffman was incarcerated. Um, so that's it for this week's Psycho Crime. Join us again in two weeks when we look into the case of an Amish man who kills his wife to hide his secret life of perversion. In the meantime, I hope you sleep better knowing the how and why people do such awful things.